Let's go to God's Word this morning. I want to go to the Old Testament book of a long time, but we're going to spend a few weeks here in the book of Nehemiah. And there's some people that say that we don't really need the Old Testament. I don't believe that at all. I believe that, as the Apostle Paul would say, the Timothy, all Scripture is inspired by God. Amen? And it's, and it's profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And one thing about the Old Testament, why we don't just unhitch from it, is because we learn about the history of God's people. And it's kind of, if you, if you didn't study your Old Testament, it'd be kind of like walking in on a movie halfway through and you don't even really know what's going on, okay? And so the Apostle Paul says this before we get to Nehemiah in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. He says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Now, that's talking about the, uh, the Old Testament, okay? Because when Paul's writing this, there's not a canonized scripture of the New Testament. So he's talking about the Old Testament here. He says, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope, okay? And, and so as we go through this book of Nehemiah, I want us to be encouraged. I want us to realize there is hope in Jesus Christ, amen? And so... Before we look at this story, I think it's important for us to understand the context of this situation. Now, the book of Nehemiah was written 445, 46 years before the birth of Christ. But in order to better understand what is going on, I think you need to go back hundreds of years before this. Because in Genesis chapter 12, let's go back to that point, okay, and just kind of set a foundation here. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abram, who will be later changed to Abraham, and tells him that he is going to bless him, and he's going to make him a great nation, and that from his seed, which is Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, around 200 years later, Abraham's descendants find themselves in bondage in Egypt. Now, God raises up a deliverer in Moses to lead his people out of bondage into the promised land, the land that God had promised Abraham some 200 years earlier in Genesis chapter 12, okay? And so before they enter the promised land, God gives them commandments. He gives them instructions for how they are to behave, how they are to conduct themselves, and we know that as the Ten Commandments. He also gives them the ceremonial law and the civil laws and tells them these are the terms of the covenant. If you will keep these terms, guess what? I will bless you. But if you break these terms, I will judge you. And so when we read our Old Testament, we realize that time and time again, after entering into the promised land and formally becoming a nation, God's people were in a constant state, a constant cycle of rebellion they would fall into idolatry. And then God would send his prophets to tell them to turn back to God. And then all of a sudden, the enemy would come in and God would judge them through the enemy, through their enemies. The people would confess their sins, turn back to God. God would bless them only to see them repeat that same cycle 
over and over again. Now, it was also during this time that the nation of Israel experienced a civil war. And it was dividing into two different kingdoms. You had Judah and you also had Israel. But over a hundred years before Nehemiah writes this letter, God's people were conquered by the Babylonians and they were taken captive back into Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. The city of Jerusalem was ransacked, it was burned, it was destroyed. The walls of the city were destroyed. But God, because he is faithful, he allows the Persian Empire to conquer the Babylonians and the Persian Empire under King Cyrus the Great says, you guys can go back and you can rebuild Jerusalem. You can rebuild the temple. Now, this takes us up to where Nehemiah is and where our text is this morning. The temple was rebuilt in 515 B.C. under the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah. But the walls of the city of Jerusalem had not been rebuilt. And this left the city that vulnerable to attacks. And so let's pick it up this morning in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And let's see what the Word of God says here. It says, The word of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, now it came to pass, and it happened in the month of Chisley, in the twelfth year when I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and I, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. Then verse 3 says, They said unto me, The remnant or survivors there, in the province who survived the captivity, listen, are in great distress and reproach and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. If you go to Psalm 79, I've got this on the screen, we'll read this. We read where they write about the conditions during that time in verses 1 through 4. He says, O God... The nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid ruins, Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. He says they have poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. This was the scene of God's people during this time. If you go back to verse 3 of Nehemiah, our text this morning, we see some words that stick out there in verse 3. We see first and foremost, the people are in great distress. They're in a miserable situation because of their conditions. We see they're also in great reproach. In other words, they are in great shame because of what has gone on. The walls are broken down. The gates have been burned with fire. And of course, if you know anything about ancient times, when a city's walls were broken down, when a city had no walls, they were completely vulnerable to the enemy. 
The enemy could just come in at any time and just steal away anything they had that was of value. And so those were living in an unwalled city in a time of great distress. They didn't know if, an, if one day the enemy was going to come in and take their wives and children and burn their homes down. And they found themselves in this condition because of their idolatry and because of their rebellion. Now listen, verse 3 could be written about our nation today. We're in a nation at a time when people are in great distress. People are stressed out. People are on the edge. People are in great distress and shame. Instead of walls are being broken down, you've got marriages broken down. You've got families that are broken down. You've got churches that are broken down. You've got all kinds of society that is breaking down right before our eyes. And the thing is this, it's no different from back in Nehemiah's days, even though this was written 400 years before the birth of Christ. The reason they were in that condition, their problem was not broken down walls. Their problem was God. God had allowed that to happen. God had put them in that situation. And if God is the problem, then God is the answer. Right? If God is the reason why they are there in that condition, then their only solution is to return to God. And let me say this, even today, we can't commit idolatry. And I know you may say, well, I don't have a statue in my yard or on my mantle at home. But you can't put God on down your list of things and expect him to bless your life. We can't be living in open rebellion to God's word and expect God to bless us. And so as we look at chapter 1, I think there's three things about Nehemiah, this man, that we can learn from today. And look, the first thing I want us to look at about Nehemiah is, first and foremost, Nehemiah was a man of compassion. Okay? Look at verse 2 again with me. He says, Then Hananiah, one of my brothers and some men from Judah, came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived captivity the captivity, and about Jerusalem. Now, why is this important? Because you've got to realize this. You've got to realize who Nehemiah was. If you go down to verse 11 of this chapter, the last verse in this chapter, the very last section of this, of this verse, Nehemiah says this. He says, Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Now, why is this important? Because you've got to realize that a cupbearer was a significant position in any ancient royal court. The cupbearer was a personal bodyguard to the king. He was the one who would taste the wine. He would taste the food before the king ate it. Okay? Because the king didn't trust people because they realized that his food could be poisoned at any time. 
And so Nehemiah was in charge of tasting any drink, tasting any food that would come before the king. And if Nehemiah felt okay after eating it, then he'd eat it. Okay? And I know this, is, this sounds like a great job for somebody that loves adventure and loves food, right? But we see here that Nehemiah was in a great position. He also lived in Susa, which was 800 miles away from Jerusalem. And so he had a good job. He had a good place to live. He had everything his heart needed. He had everything he desired there. But despite his comforts, he cared enough to ask, how are the conditions back in our homeland? And the Bible says in verse 4 of Nehemiah chapter 1 that when he heard about the people being in distress, he heard about the walls being broken down, he heard about the gates being burned with fire. The Bible says this, that he sat down, he wept, and he mourned for days. Now listen, when Nehemiah heard about the conditions, he didn't just empathize with them. He didn't just say, oh, I feel bad for them. No, Nehemiah had compassion for the situation. Now let me say this, compassion is a deep awareness of someone's condition with the desire to help. Listen, we can feel bad for people a lot of times. But feeling bad for people is not going to help them. See, when Jesus was on this earth in Matthew 9, 36, Matthew says that when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. In other words, he felt such a pity for the people, he felt such empathy for the people, he felt such compassion for the people that it caused him to help the people. And let me say this, Helen Keller said this one time, science may have found the cure for most evils, but it has found no remedy for the worst of them all, and that is the apathy of human beings. In other words, we just simply don't care. As long as my house is doing good, I don't care. As long as my finances are doing good, I don't care. As long as my ministry is doing good, I don't care. That is what is wrong with a lot of the church in general today is we don't have enough compassion to actually want to do something about the situation. Let me say this. A lot of us, and I got to be honest with you, sometimes I'm like this, that when I'm facing a problem or somebody's facing a problem, I've said this many times. I say, listen, don't tell me because the more I know, the more I'm responsible for. Right? But just because you don't want to know it don't mean you don't need to know it. And a lot of times we want to be like the ostrich and just stick our head in the sand and say, well, that's not my bit. I'm not going to concern myself with that. 
I'm just going to concern myself with my own self. I, I know there's times not to get into other people's business, but when Nehemiah heard about the condition of his hometown, it stirred him in his body. It stirred him in his spirit. And if there's anything that we need today, it's we need a baptism of compassion in the body of Christ. In other words, we need to realize we are our brother's keeper. We need to be concerned about those that are cold, those that are indifferent, those that are lost. We need to have a burden about them. And we see that when Nehemiah heard about the conditions of his hometown, of his homeland, he was moved with compassion. Now the second thing that we see about Nehemiah was not only he a man of compassion, but then he's also a man of consecration. He's a man of consecration. In other words, when he realizes that their dilemma was from God, he also knows the answer to their dilemma is God. He knows that they're in their predicament because of their rebellion, because of their idolatry. So Nehemiah does the only thing he knows to do, and that is to return to God. And he does that through consecration of himself. Look at verse 1 and 4. Even though he was mourning, even though he was moved with compassion, the Bible says this, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And so Nehemiah's compassion causes him to say, I've got to return to God. And how does he do it? He does it through fasting, and he also does it through prayer. Now, let's talk about these two for a second, okay? Fasting. Now, while fasting was required of the Jews only once a year on the annual Day of Atonement, and while the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us in the New Testament that we are commanded to fast, Scripture does say that fasting is something that is good, it's profitable, it's also beneficial. And the purpose of fasting is to take our eyes off the things of the world and focus them on God. See, fasting is not necessarily a way to get God to do something, but the purpose of fasting is that we would turn our attention toward God. Now listen, when you fast, it should be done with humility. It should also be done privately unless it's done corporately. You understand that? Fasting should be done with humility. You don't go around bragging, hey, I'm on a fast. Hey, do you know I'm on a fast? You should do it privately. Matter of fact, Jesus says when you fast, what does he say? He says, wash your face, comb your hair. And unless it's done corporately, no one should know that you are fasting. But also, I would say this about fasting. If you are fasting, 
and you're not doing the basics of this, you might as well have a cheeseburger or barbecue. You can read in Isaiah 58, the people are fasting. And God says, is this the kind of fast I want? Yeah, you're fasting, but guess what? When you go to work, you treat your laborers harshly. In other words, if you're fasting and you're still talking bad to your kids like you shouldn't be talking, have a cheeseburger. You need to pray before you fast. We're going to get to that point. But here we see that Nehemiah was a man that said, the situation's dire, we're in trouble, they're in trouble, and so he begins to fast, and then the second thing he does is he begins to pray. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Let's look at his prayer in verse 5 through 10 here. He says, and I said, now we're going to read it, then we'll go back through it here. He said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and the loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive to our prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinance which you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there, and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servant and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to their prayers of the servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to rever your name. Now let's look at some observations from this prayer. First of all, when he goes to God in prayer, he begins his prayer with adoration. Okay? What does he say? He reminds God. He's not really reminding God. He's really reminding himself about how awesome God is. He calls him the great and awesome God. See, when we pray, our first thing, first step in prayer should be adoration, recognizing God for who he is. God, you are awesome. God, you are omnipotent. God, you're everything. God, you're in control. God, you're all-knowing. So this is Nehemiah. And he and listen, God knows these things, but it's important for us when we pray that we start out our prayers by Adoration of who God is because that reminds us of who God is. And so he begins by adoration. Oh God, you're awesome. Oh God, you're great. But then he moves to the second part, which is confession. Look what he says here. Verse 6. He says in verse 6, 
He says, we have sinned against you. We, there's that, the third line from the bottom. Start with a we there on the right side. We have sinned against you. Now look at verse, he goes on to say this, continue on. I and my father's house have sinned. Verse 7, he says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinance which you have commanded your servant Moses. Notice his prayer. It's not about, Lord, look what they have done. They've done this, Lord. They're the ones that's got us in this. No, Nehemiah says, you know those songs we used to sing, probably in kids' church, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not my neighbor, not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, oh Lord. This is what Nehemiah is saying. He's saying it's not somebody else's fault, the reason why we're in this condition. He said it's my fault. And let me tell you something. We live in a society when a lot of us are always blaming our conditions on someone else. If the teacher would just teach better, I'd get it. Preacher just preach a little, uh, oh, if, if it'd be a little bit shorter, I'd get it. Right? We're always looking at others. I think it was D.L. Moody said it like this. He said, I've had more trouble with myself than any other man I've ever met. Teddy Roosevelt said it like this, if you could kick the person responsible for most of your troubles in the pants, you wouldn't be able to sit down for a month. Nehemiah's prayer, the majority of his prayer is about personal confession to God for his sins. He says, it's me. It's us. We're the reason why we are in this situation. And a lot of us would do some good if we would become honest with ourselves and say, Lord, it's not them, it's me. I'm the one that's grown cold. I'm the one that's grown indifferent. I'm the one that's moved away. And so we see here he sees the problem. There's the, the walls are burned. They're broken down. The gates are burned. The city's vulnerable. He weeps. He's moved with compassion. His compassion causes him to begin to fast and begin to pray. But look at this. Once he prays, that prayer turned into confidence that God was able. It gave him confidence that God was able. He was confident in the power of God. 
He was confident in a God. He says, he's reminding himself that God said if we would return to him, he would heal us. He would restore us. And God is a faithful God that would do what he said he's going to do. And so we see that out of his communion with God, out of his time of fasting, out of his time with prayer, he realized that God is big enough to solve any problem. We see this all the time in scriptures. Remember Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I went to the temple that day, and he said, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. And all of a sudden Isaiah says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips from from a people of unclean lips. And all of a sudden the angel touches him with that hot coal. And Isaiah goes from woe is me out of his communion with God to here I am Lord, send me. You sit in the book of Acts, the early church. That when they're faced with a problem, a situation, an issue, when the enemy comes against them, that they begin to fast, they begin to pray. They begin to seek the face of God. And all of a sudden now, a people that is scared, all of a sudden God gives them confidence. God gives them boldness to face the enemy. And what I'm saying, we can learn something here today, this morning. We can learn to be people of compassion. That when we see the problem, we don't say, that's just them. I'm not worried. I'm I'm okay. That compassion causes us to go to consecration where we begin to pray and seek God. And out of that praying and seeking God, it gives us confidence. And all of a sudden now, Nehemiah, even though he's got everything he could ever want where he's at, he he doesn't have to go back to Jerusalem. He can live just as good as he can ever live there in Susa and die a happy man. But yet, his consecration to God gives him confidence to want to be a part of the solution to the problem. Let me say this. Don't ever pray a prayer that you're not willing to be part of the answer to the problem. Okay? Don't ever pray a prayer that you're not willing to say, Lord, use me. Lord, send me in this situation. And so we see here the city's in distress. The people are in shame. Walls are broken down. Gates are burned. It seems like a hopeless situation. But Nehemiah is moved with compassion. He returns to God, seeks God, and God stirs his heart, which causes him to commit to action. Let me tell you about a story in the Old Testament found in 2 Kings I think it's around chapter 5, maybe 1 Kings chapter 5. But there's a story in the Old Testament about four lepers. And these four lepers were sitting outside the gates of the city. 
And God sends a famine to that city. And that famine is so severe that the Bible tells us that a donkey's head sold for two pounds of silver, dove's dung sold for two ounces of silver, and you're complaining about the price of eggs being $7, right? But it was so bad that people were saying, hey, listen, we'll cook my kids tonight. We'll eat them. We'll cook yours tomorrow night and eat them. That's how bad it had gotten. Well, there was four lepers that were sitting outside the city. And they looked at each other and they said this, Why sit here until we die? Why stay here until we die? Because not far away was the enemy. And the enemy had all the food, all the things that God's people needed. And so those four lepers said, listen, let's go to the enemy's camp. And if they kill us, guess what? We're going to die anyway. And so when those four lepers got up and started doing something, God sent an angel and he slaughtered those enemies. And when those lepers got to the enemy's camp, every enemy was slain. And they had all the food. They had every provision they needed. Why? Because God is a God that can do the impossible. Okay? He is a God that can do the impossible. Even though it seemed like everything was hopeless, when those men started walking, God started working. God started working. So how are we going to end this this morning? As you're coming and playing, I want us to stand... Now, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to do this. We know right now that our country, society is under attack. The church is under attack. Our families are under attack. And the reason why we are where we are is because in general, I'm not going specific, in general, we have forsaken God. How can we expect God to bless us if we are putting him fourth, fifth, sixth place. It doesn't work that way. God doesn't change. 
And so what I'm, what I'm doing is this. I'm calling the church to an emphasis on prayer. Okay? Now, a lot of times when churches do this, they make it so it, it makes people feel guilty. I'm not doing that. But what I am saying is this. This coming Tuesday from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., the church is going to be open. Okay? For anybody that would feels the need, to, if you want to get a group, get a group, come pray. If you, listen, I know, I know we got people that don't live over here. You, prayer's not bound by a place. Understand that. But on Tuesdays, if you got a set on, listen, I've got my phone. It's up there. But I've got 150 alarms on my phone. Tell me what to do. And on my phone right now, I've got an alarm that says prayer emphasis. Prayer emphasis on Tuesday. And whether, if you don't come here, that's fine. But if you get in your prayer closet, guest bedroom, and this is our emphasis this week. I want us to ask the Holy Spirit to search us. 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 It's me. It's me, Lord. It's me. If I have turned my back on you, it's not somebody else's fault that I've grown cold. It's me. It's not my spouse's fault. It's not my kid's fault. No, me. What can I do? And so there's two emphases this week. And good Lord willing, we'll have an emphasis every week. Now listen, I'm not going to say we're going to go six weeks or six days. I'm not saying that. Because a lot of times you try to box yourself in. And all of a sudden when you call it off, you feel bad. I don't believe it's about that. I'm not about to go there. But there's two areas I want us to be concerned with this week. And it's God give us compassion when we see lost. We want to be the answer, part of the answer to the solution. When we see things that are broken down, we don't just say, well, I'm good. My, 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 my walls are good. No, that we're moved. So compassion and confession this week.